Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as this week we get the chance to speak with Shamabul Yakub, who is one of New Zealand's leading economists. And what we're talking about on this show is COVID-19. Now, it doesn't come as a surprise that this would be the topic because I think it's at the front of all of our minds since we're all adjusting to working from home, keeping the kids entertained, and realizing how much time we actually spent commuting before this. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this broad and free-ranging conversation, and in particular, thinking about the economic impact. But beyond that, getting to the fundamentals, what's actually going on here, and how this might shape and influence the type of country that we become after the crisis is over. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. If you do, remember there's more than 168 interviews in the back catalog as well, and there's plenty of content at theseeds.nz. Also, I recorded this podcast as a Zoom interview, so the video recording is also available at the Seeds YouTube channel, and I'll post that on social media in case you want to see what it was like during the conversation. And just for historical record purposes, this interview was recorded on the 31st of March, 2020, so that's the context about which we're speaking. Now let's get into this interview with Shamubil. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Shamubil Yakub to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure. And this is unusual because every other Seeds episode I've done, and there's more than 168 of them, has been in person. So I've always traditionally thought it was important to look someone in the eye to be able to ask hard questions or go, you know, a bit deeper with people. But... We live in unusual times, <laughs> so I'm making an exception. And um, I'm really interested in your perspective as an economist on sort of what's going on in the world today, um, both looking through our New Zealand lens, but also just broader than that as well, sort of what are we seeing around the world. And um, people um, who haven't listened to the podcast uh, may not know, but normally I talk about people's backstories and where they're from. But in this case, I think it'd be nice if we just talked, we just dive right in and we talk about COVID-19 and, and what we're seeing. So um, before we started recording, we, you were saying that this actually is your normal anyway, right? You kind of work from home. I do. So, you know, most of my colleagues are based in Wellington and I live in Auckland. So I have a home office and I have a usual routine of working in my study and then I sort of pop out for lunch with my kids and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, for me, this is quite normal. But what has changed is so many more people are working from home that they're not demanding that I go see them in person. So I'm finding I'm actually more efficient in some ways because I'm able to get hold of everybody and have those conversations. Um, but maybe <laughs> the world is catching up with where you've been for a while. <laughs> Well, it is and it isn't. I think in some ways um, that human interaction, that face-to-face is really important. Mm. And uh, we're still, you know, we're still monkeys in, in, a many, in many ways. So for us, having that physical interaction, being able to see each other, gauge each other's perceptions and facial features, body language has quite a lot of uh, impact. Mm. But we know that in the absence of that, things like video conferencing and those kinds of things can be quite good alternatives. Mm. Certainly once you've met somebody. So I think it doesn't do away with the need for human connection, but we can find other ways to complement that physical meeting. Yeah. And you can see that here, you know, we're interacting on different islands and yet we're able to 
talk instantaneously and, and see each other. And it does help. I should have said as a background that we've known each other for a couple months at least um, because we're both on a board together. And so that probably aids the interaction because we've sat around, we've strategized, we've had a couple hours, you know, eating peanuts and chocolate together in a room. So <laughs> I think that makes a real difference because I think that initial getting to know somebody part, you don't have to do that or video, which is, mm -hmm. I think, a bit awkward. But yeah. once you know somebody, it's quite easy to maintain that connection. Mm. So now I feel like um, we are going to see a lot more of this happening even after this crisis blows over. Mm. We are going to be more comfortable with using this kind of technology. And it will mean that we are, I think, better connected than we have been. I think a lot of young people in particular are very good at doing this anyway. But this is going to become a, a norm for many more people. Well, it's been a forced norm, hasn't it? Like I work in a law firm and all of a sudden we can't go to the office. You know, it's, it had to happen so quickly. And probably if you were rolling it out, you would say, well, we'll do this in a year, two years or something. But this was like, we have five days or less to actually implement it. So, And, you know, there are teething problems, but people are finding very good ways of working around issues. Mm. And in a crisis, we see that, right? There's lots of inventiveness and creativity that happens during crisis because there is no alternative. And I think there are a lot of, um, I guess, frightening things that are happening around the world with this infection and pandemic. And um, the way that I've sort of thought about it is when it first started, you know, it was very much a China thing, right? It was happening in China and they were doing all these things. And when you were outside, it's very hard to get a sense of why are they so worried about it? What's going on? And it kind of felt a bit removed, right? And so when I was thinking about it from a perspective of New Zealand, it was very much an economic linkage story. It was about, well, what does it mean for our trade? What does it mean for imports? Those kinds of things. And then once the virus started to spread, you realize that actually it's not about our economic connections with China. It's actually a much bigger story in terms of what does it mean for the world that's dealing with this, this disease that is spreading everywhere. And we've seen in places like Italy, for example, just the devastating consequences of what happens if the disease is allowed to just unleash. And, you know, we have to think about these kinds of events as humans first, as, as a, you know, as an impact on humanity, and then think about the economic consequences. Yeah. And, you know, when I look at what New Zealand is doing relative to around the world, I feel pretty privileged to be living here right now. Mm. So, you know, we might argue that we should have moved a week earlier or whatever, but in reality, we are moving hard to essentially eliminate the disease from New Zealand. Mm. Everybody else is really looking at how do they mitigate and keep it low. We are trying to essentially eliminate it until a virus, a vaccine is available. Yeah, it's and actually an interesting perspective because I was having some exchanges with some people in the US and I was explaining that I was in lockdown, I was at home and they were expressing surprise, you know, like, oh, you know, like, is that really happening? And, and that, that in turn surprised me because I think because I'm in the bubble here in New Zealand of what's going on, I'm, I guess maybe I'm not appreciating that other countries aren't taking the drastic steps, if you want to phrase it that way, that, that we've taken of actually lockdown. Yeah, and <clears throat> I think we are moving a lot more aggressively than other places. And there is a fear that if you move too aggressively, it will have this big impact on the economy and a big impact on essentially jobs and people's livelihoods. It's true, but the alternative is not better. 
because if the disease is allowed to spread through a country like New Zealand, you know, in a worst case scenario, we might lose 80,000 people to the disease. And in a normal year, we only lose about 40,000 people just under actually. Mm. So the number of deaths in New Zealand could double. I mean, just the, the societal impact of that kind of devastation for our population. We're talking about our friends, parents, and grandparents. You know, these, these are not randoms. These are people that we are actually connected to. Yep. So I don't think that's really an option. But also there is a, a misconception that if we delay our actions, that the economy will, uh, will be better that we will have more businesses around and more jobs. I don't think that's true. I think the best possible course that we could take is try and eliminate the disease. And that period is really quite painful. And we should have all the supports that we can to preserve jobs and businesses. And when we come out of it, we will be in a new normal because we still have relatively closed borders and previously very important industries like tourism just will not be as big as they were. So we will see some really big dislocating changes coming through. But I think that is a better option than having a situation where people lose faith in their leaders, people lose faith in the institutions and in each other. You know, if we can't trust each other to be essentially not infecting with a disease that might kill you, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll all be acting with fear. And that is actually a worse thing for economy than anything else. And it's interesting as well, um, leaving aside the economic impact, the social impact that it's having in the sense of, I, I've never heard an official sanction that we should be kind to each other. You know, it's, it's, it's like, this is, it, it's about humans relating to each other. It's almost like we're coming back to what is the essence of what makes us who we are um, rather than so. being focused on, well, the GDP, this percentage, you know, it's more like a, and, and I think Jacinda Ardern is doing a great job of leading this approach of, and you saw it after the shootings in Christchurch as well, this sort of, we are one, let's come together, be kind to each other, which is quite an interesting phenomenon, really, when you think about the opposite would be a hard-nosed sort of money-only approach. Yeah, and I think um, <clears throat> New Zealand has shown that approach over successive crises. Mm -hmm. So I recall the Christchurch earthquakes we had you know, quite a few years ago now, mm -hmm. and the overwhelming reaction was one of solidarity, mm -hmm. of collective action, that we want to help our, uh, you know, our friends and neighbours that have been affected by it. Mm -hmm. And that's the right reaction. And I think we've seen the same following the shootings in Christchurch, and we've seen the same with what's happening with this particular virus. And there, uh, collectivism is quite an important part of getting through this stuff. And in many kind of economic models, we assume that people are selfish. And it's true that we have certain decisions that are made in very selfish ways, but also humans have extraordinary capacity for compassion, for solidarity, for collectivism. We may not all believe, it to, believe in it to the same extent, but we all buy into the wider structure of society. Mm. And I think that's kind of where we are. You know, I look at what New Zealand represents. It largely represents a place that rubs along. We get along with each other, even if we have different viewpoints. Mm. And in crisis, we can really pull together. Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. Do you think that there's something unique about New Zealand here? Or is it somehow a, like a, you know, it's an island, right? <laughs> island nation, no other immediate borders. Like, what is it that makes it have that unique character? 
Well, I don't know if we're unique. I think there is a common humanity that is coming through. And under the right leadership, I think we see it at its full. Mm. And like I said, it's not necessarily one leader, but it's the values that these uh, leaders embody and they reflect of the country. I think by and large, New Zealand as a country holds values that are fairly collective, mm. that we do look after each other. We might argue about how much and in what way, but I think we have a basic understanding and belief that we're all in this together. Yeah. I think part of it is about being small, part of it is about being isolated. I think there's a sense of distance where being with each other is really important. But I think first and foremost, though, it's it's the humanity in all of us. I don't think we're that unique in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. So can we go back in a time machine to when we last met, um, which was about a month ago? And at that time, this was kind of in the newspaper, but as a little byline, it was definitely not the front page. And I was definitely not working from home. Um, can you just describe, just take us through your own journey of becoming aware of this, maybe at the start of the year, I'm not sure when that was. And like you said, what you thought the impact would be as a trading nation, and then take us through to today, and sort of what you're seeing and, and what you think the impact will be. It's mm, a good question. And so really, we started talking about this COVID-19 in February in New Zealand. So we didn't have any cases, but we could see what was happening in China, in particular in Wuhan. And I was really worried because China is such a big trading partner for us. So that direct connection really made me very worried. Mm. So I was also looking back through history and thinking, well, this might be very similar to what we saw during SARS. Um, but our economic connections are probably six times bigger. So that was my starting point. About a week later, it became very clear that it was going to spread a bit wider. And I thought, no, but they're, not going, they're going to learn from what happened in China and we're going to stamp it out. So it's going to be a short, sharp thing. So I thought maybe we'll see something like what happened during the global financial crisis. And then a week later, it became evident that actually we're not following in the footsteps of what China did quite late when they had the lockdown and strict quarantine testing, all those bits and pieces. Instead, we're going to learn the same lessons and have the same mistakes. And it has become increasingly clear that what we're looking at now is probably more akin to what we saw during the Great Depression rather than what we've seen during the GFC. And to give you a bit of context, you know, a normal, you know, a GFC recession in New Zealand would mean our unemployment rate might go to, say, from 4% to 6%. So we might lose 80,000 jobs. But if you look at the Great Depression, you know, the official estimate was 15%, and the unofficial estimate was 30%. And we are talking about widespread destruction of businesses and jobs and scarring of you know, people's lives, particularly young people, because their careers are destroyed. And you know, they just have a much later start in life. And everything that we're doing right now should be about minimizing the impact of the disease but we have to think very hard about how do we come out of this as strongly as possible. So we're going to have to spend an extraordinary sum of money when it comes to the stimulus from government, fiscal stimulus, but also what the Reserve Bank, the central bank can do in terms of printing money, whatever they can. You know, we're talking, pushing the boat out, you know, no boundaries, try new stuff, be as aggressive and bold as possible because this is quite truly the biggest economic and social challenge that we have faced mm. since the Great Depression. 
Well, that's an interesting point because I remember my grandmother, she was in America during the Great Depression and she described, uh, for example, on Christmas, they would get a piece of fruit, you know, that was their present and that, but that was quite a, you know, quite unusual because of the circumstances that they were going through. And my great grandfather, he ended up working for something called the CCC, which was the Civilian Conservation Corps in America, which was basically part of a public works regime that um, that they were doing, building um, parks and you know national parks and all types of infrastructure. And I think that was one of the things that they were doing to kind of drag people out of the the depression and and give people jobs. Um, can you just describe then for us, just, I, I like where you're going with this, you know, th- blue skies thinking. Um, this is something that's quite unique and unusual. What would be some of your takes on how we can um, have unique responses to something that is so big? Yeah, I think part of it's around essentially, again, going back to the values of what is it that we want to achieve. I mm-hmm. think we want to have, you know, one of the sort of big things in economics is about efficiency, but the other part of efficiency is equity and fairness. So I think we've been quite focused in the last few decades around efficiency as opposed to fairness. And here is a time when we know that a lot of the impact of this recession, however deep it might be, will be worst felt by those people at the bottom of the heap. So actually having a really initially a very big focus on the social safety net to make sure that those people have some dignity that those people are well looked after is going to be absolutely critical. But you know, I think we're going to have the kinds of, not so blue skies, but perhaps a rhythm and a rhyme of what happened in the 1950s. The post-war thinking that was very um, future-focused. They were thinking 100 years out, not about what's going to happen in one or five years' time. And that's the kind of thinking we want to see. I want us to invest in the social and physical infrastructure of New Zealand. <clears throat> that's going to look after for our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, because that's the opportunity that we have now. So just thinking about the 1950s and <clears throat> you know, the post-World War II stimulus and various things that were done, I, I'd love to just hear a bit more about that, but having the overlay of something that we've already hinted at throughout this conversation, which is looking at our humanity, <laughs> looking at what's fair. Um, you and I got to know each other through an initiative called Community Finance, which is um, looking at social housing for people who would not have access to houses and saying, can we connect philanthropic funders with the providers of that social housing? And, um, and so I know we're on the same page here thinking about um, how can we do that in an equitable way? But what I'm wondering is, could this also be a watershed moment for the conceptions and the paradigm of thinking around economics and jobs and business as we move from maybe the pre-COVID-19 days to the future and what that might look like in terms of how we might change in a new way of thinking? Yeah, I think it's already changing our thinking a bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me sort of um, maybe provide a few examples. Um, One will be around our thinking of resilience. So we've been very focused on short-term gains, making things quick, fast, cheap, but we don't think about resilience and building in capability so that if a bad thing happens, we're able to essentially go on 
as well as we can. And it, it, it relates to our, uh, you know, stocks of uh, medical supplies, our food supplies, uh, how much capacity we have, our network infrastructure, all of those kinds of things. So just that thinking that actually there is an important part of resilience, which is good for everybody. There is a public good that we should look after. That resilience thinking is really important. I think there is an element of, I guess, cooperation that comes through as well. Um, a lot of the way that we think about politics and policymaking is about competition, is about essentially the, you know, the, the winner takes all. You know, those are the kinds of principles that we embed in the way that we design our policies and our economy. And yet, when a crisis happens, cooperation is the most important part. So where do we draw the line when it comes to things like our essentially underlying values when it comes to things like competition versus cooperation? Because actually cooperation is probably a stronger force during periods of crisis than competition. So cooperation is going to become, I think, a very big part of how we think about things going forward um, across organizations, within industries, between government departments, but also, again, across countries. One of the most frustrating things that we've seen with the COVID-19 response is the individual national approaches to dealing with it. Yet we know that countries who've experienced it have good lessons and good ways of dealing with things so that we don't all make the same mistakes. And yet we're all doing it on our own with our own experts at a vast amount of cost and duplication. And yet our level of trust in each other is so low that that multilateralism and coordination and cooperation is not happening. I hope that one of the lessons that come out, comes out of this is that cooperation is absolutely important. And the final sort of example probably for me is this will show the underlying fault lines of our society. You know, the impact on renters, on the poor, the vulnerable, the sick is going to be magnified significantly over the course of coming months. I hope that wakes us up to what we actually stand for and whether or not we actually have the infrastructure, whether it's in our health system or in our housing system or in our welfare system, to be able to deal with that or, or even with charities. And that final one is really important for me because what holds us together, what sort of defines us as, you know, as a, a population is our ability to look after the most vulnerable. And this will be the time that I think will test that a lot. We tell ourselves in New Zealand that we're an egalitarian, caring country. But I think we'll find that actually many of our policies, many of the things that we do are, in fact, incredibly mean and incredibly destructive. Now, that's helpful. So just reiterating that the first thing would be that we're going to focus on resilience. That would be important. The second is cooperation. The third is learning from others and actually taking on board their experiences. And the fourth would be uh, a focus on um, the vulnerable and how we can actually make things more equitable. Sounds like Absolutely. those are some of the key elements. Yeah, and for me, the final one is probably one that um, is the most important because if, you've, if you manage to look after the most vulnerable, it means everybody's doing okay. Yeah. Right, because they're the, the people at the, sort of at the, at the vulnerable end, they, 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 they magnify the pressures that the entire population is facing. Mm. So if we're able to look after those people at the bottom, it means we've actually looked after everybody. Mm. So is there any terminology that would be helpful for us to consider when you look back at the history of economics and think about how we've traditionally 
understood it. Um, the word that I'm wondering about is the word the human economy or something like that. You know, looking, <clears throat> looking not just at the economy as in numbers and GDP and interest rates and those sorts of things, but actually saying there's a lot that we haven't traditionally looked at when we come to this. And part of that is the well-being of our people. And I guess we see that a little bit. There's some green shoots, isn't there? You know, the well-being budget and um, treasuries focus on more factors than just the interest rates. But do you have any thoughts on that or what sort of terminology is helpful? I do. And I think uh, partly it's a reimagination of why we do things. And so there's quite a lot that's been written about these kinds of things. So mm -hmm. we've got some recent work by people like Kate Roworth, uh, people like uh, Mariana Mazzucato, you know, they've been really a bit focused around what is the role of wider society in the economic system, right? So because the economy is not there for itself, it's there to make it, to serve a, a purpose for humanity. Mm. It's for us to have uh, better lives and more of us to have better lives. And we're seeing a little bit of that in places like in New Zealand, in, in Treasury, for example, they're thinking around well-being. I think it's very good. Um, you know, the same kind of thinking is happening inside the OECD and in other places too. So it's it's a, it's an emerging area, and I think one that will get a lot more traction mm. in coming months. Uh, but I think more more important than um, terminology is what is the kind of the underlying philosophy that guides us. So economics is just one tool, and we shouldn't overplay the importance of that because economists don't know very much. We can help you know, give, give you comparators, we can help you think about issues, we can give you the arguments for and against. But at the end, there is still a value judgment that should be based on something that is more fundamental. And I think the word that we're looking for is probably a word like love. You know, that has to be your guiding principle. So there has to be an element of why are we doing making these decisions? You know, would it be consistent with an approach where, you know, we, we, we in our center is a word like love? And it was, I think for me, it's a quite a funny story because in a, before the last election, I was on TV and I said, oh, you know, I think tax is love, right? And I got a lot of flack for that because, you know, there were a whole bunch of hardcore right-wing nutters who were like, oh, you know, tax is not love, tax is theft. And it was quite interesting seeing that debate play out. And the reason why I said tax is love is because that's the way we look after everybody without any conditions. We don't judge whether or not the person in, in, a, in a different city is going to get help from us. We just say that we're going to pay our taxes and that takes care of our res collective responsibility. And during a crisis that becomes really clear that our ability to have a collective response is actually what holds us together. And right now, I don't see anybody saying tax is theft. Everybody's putting their hand out and saying the government should be spending lots of money rescuing businesses and households and all those kinds of things, right? Yeah. In a crisis, we're all socialists. But <laughs> I just hope that we learn these lessons and remember this when the time has changed, that actually it's really important that there is a minimum level of collectivism that's important. And collectivism is not quite the right word. I think it's love. It is about for all of us without any conditions. Mm. No, that's good. I, I, I like it. I find sometimes words themselves get in the way, don't they? Mm. <laughs> and, and actually what we're talking about is the essence of, of the human experience. And one thing I think that we're learning is to have empathy for strangers. Um, certainly, you know, the, the reality is something like this could impact you. It could impact me. It's invisible. We can't see it. You know, 
it would be different if it was like, here comes a bus and that silly person is standing right there. Whereas this, it's, it's that um, maybe primordial fear because we can't stop it. It's, it's kind of in, this, in the environment around us. But the point is that through that, we then relate with others because it could have been us. It, it, it could easily be us. So, yeah, no, I, I like that. And, and I guess the question is, how do we build the foundation for the future for, for your kids, for my kids, that takes the learning from everything that we're going through now and starts to build constructs that is maybe more regenerative and a regenerative focus rather than an extractive focus. And I think that's where that 100-year focus is really important mm -hmm. because the scale of the rebuilding of this economy and this nation is going to be very big. And if we focus only on the future of my generation, for example, we will be too short-sighted. This is when we say we're going to make investments now that will repay dividends in 100 years' time. So actually investing in climate resilience, investing in sustainability, investing in us essentially leapfrogging all these things that have been holding us back for a number of years through in legacy industries, legacy processes, it's time to deal with those kinds of things because it's an opportunity to do those things. And in many ways, when you do those things, it shows a commitment to future generations. And that in and of itself is the change in the paradigm that you're talking about. Um, I don't think it needs to be explicitly said or formalized into something. It needs to be reflected in the actions that we take. What are we doing that's going to essentially say, yes, we're going to look after our vulnerable. Yes, we're going to look after future generations. Yes, our system of taxation, our system of benefits are going to be fair and equitable. These are all things that again, possess that one kind of thing in the middle, that empathy that you talked about or the love that I talked about. Mm. Uh, personally, I prefer love over empathy because nobody says, uh, you know, honey, I, I empathize with you. Mm. You know, we, we say, well, honey, I love you, right? Because that's the feeling that we experience as the human experience. Um, I think even empathy kind of gives us a sense of distance. Mm. I want us to have no distance. Mm. I think it's okay for us, all, all of us, to be in this together because it is about having no distance. It's about having no barriers. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that is what we, you know, optimistically, I hope that is what, what we can see. And it's interesting because I think you and I have talked about this before, but there are green shoots that were already there. You know, I look at the work of Akina Foundation, you know, looking at social enterprise. I've done a lot in that space, as you know, and looking at business actually having a fundamentally different driver where it's not purely about what the return is to shareholders. It's also looking at, hey, what's the impact of this organization? And if, if it's a profitable business, maybe it's not a, actually the right business because it's making something that fundamentally is not helpful. You know? And so having that lens on things is important. And then the, the other green shoots that I've seen recently is the focus on impact investing, this idea that people are actually interested in investing in a way that has returns beyond the financial returns. And, and you and I have talked about that before with community finance and you know, social housing. People are interested in that. And then the other thing I see is the, the rise of like consumer choice that people are actually taking seriously that if I buy this shampoo as opposed to that shampoo, I'm having an impact. So, so the value of the dollar. Um, and I think all of it, those are just some of the many examples of 
what I think has been a paradigm shift of thinking that's occurring. And what I'm hopeful of is that what we're going through now is just going to be able to accelerate that so that we, those green shoots can actually thrive and prosper and, and more people can realize that there is another way of doing things. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, <clears throat> my great hope is that during this month of the lockdown, we'll realize that we spend our money on a lot of stuff that we don't actually need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, consumerism is probably the biggest threat to humanity. You know, we are consuming ourselves out of this planet. So we talk about carbon emissions and that kind of stuff. That's the outcome of us consuming too much. So if we actually reduce our consumption, that will do a lot more than any other mitigation strategy, mm. right? And I hope that a lot of the things that we're experiencing now sticks because that's what we saw after the Great Depression. People learned how to make do and making things last longer. So there's an element of that that I hope that it sticks. I think we'll also see some really positive changes around how people work. I think we'll see a lot more working from home, uh, a reduction in how much people travel, because we know that one of the biggest sources of pollution and greenhouse gases is transport. Mm. So being able to do less of that, still do it when we need to, but you know, reducing even some of it, reducing the peak would be enough to have a really big impact on essentially improving our quality of air and the future of the planet. So, you know, I'm quite optimistic in terms of there will be lots of this unintended consequences that might be positive. I just hope that they stick because, you know, we, we tend to be quite lazy as humans, right? Yeah, we it's take the craziest. <laughs> um, and also I wanted to sort of, um, you know, chat about the business thing. Um, you're right in that there is quite a lot of businesses that are doing social impact and those kinds of things. But also through this crisis, we're seeing a large majority of businesses are doing the right thing. They're keeping their staff on, they're looking after their customers, they're looking after their suppliers. So yes, you know, we, we, we have our businesses to make profits, but when the going gets tough, we don't just look after, don't look after number one. For most businesses that I'm speaking to, they're also trying to look after their staff and their suppliers and their customers. So I think there's quite a lot of that that's embedded but we don't see it very often. Mm. I would like to see that being expressed more often because the sharing of those values and the sharing of that kindness is actually really helpful because it strengthens the bonds and makes your business much stronger. Mm. I, I agree with you, but maybe that is one of the lessons is that we're seeing the best part of humanity come out as a result of a crisis like this. And the, and quest- the, worst. And the worst, yeah. <laughs> and the question is, can we keep that or can we keep the best bits of what we're seeing um, beyond the crisis? Yeah. I, think, I think we will see some of this stick and it may dissipate over time, but I think you remember the people who helped you out in your time of need. Mm. And you know, people don't forget that stuff easily. So I think there will be some of it that will linger for quite some time. There'll be a lot of goodwill that will be built up over the course of this month and coming months. Yep. Those people who have done right by their customers and their suppliers and their staff, they'll earn a level of loyalty that I think most businesses would struggle to have in normal times. Mm. So those who have the cash flow, who have, who can exist, they're not you know, threatened with death. Um, you know, and just from a business perspective, mm. I think those businesses have a real opportunity to create a very, very strong uh, amount of goodwill and loyalty mm. and that will be based on something real, not a marketing and PR spin, right? Because quite often that kind of stuff is built on PR, but this is not about PR. You're yeah. judged by your actions. Yeah. And again, you know, for me, it's just speaking from experience, the number of businesses that have been so forthcoming, that have been good with dealing with their staff and their suppliers and customers, 
that we will see some of that really taking place over coming years. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Well, the thing, one of the main things I've loved about our conversation is we're talking about economics, but it boils down to love, <laughs> which I think is great. You know, that, that would be awesome if we, could, if we could rebuild on that foundation. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's just economics, right? I think it's, it's, that should be the guiding principle for how we deal with each other. So, you know, we might all choose a different word that suits our personality, but whether it's kindness or empathy or love, I think having something that is quite wholesome in terms of what you're trying to achieve, um, it just makes it so much easier mm. because it's, so, it's easy to give and you expect nothing in return. And when you get something in return, it's just a bonus. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I read Brene Brown's book recently um, where she talks about values and being articulating your two values and that then becomes like your, your North Star and then all your actions center around, is this consistent with my values? Which it's very simple, really, but how many of us actually articulate what do I stand for? What do I believe? What do I, yeah, what, what am I doing? Does it line up with my ultimate values. So mm. is there anything else that you wanted to um, cover off, Shamabil? In I wanted other to thoughts know what you your two values are. My two values? Well, actually, I had to have three <laughs> because I couldn't fit them all in, in just two. So um, my first one was about empowering positive change. So I really wanted to empower, yeah, positive change. Um, the second one was about um, creativity, that everything I do, I want to have creativity flowing through it. And the third one was helping others whenever I can. So um, those, to me, if I can line up with those, I'm helping to empower positive change. I'm doing it in a creative way, whether it's a podcast or whatever, and I'm making it accessible for others. Those were kind of my my values. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. It's just nice to hear what, what God drives other people. Yeah. Yeah. I actually did a blog post about it. I'll, maybe I'll link to it in the, in the thing, but yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, was there anything else you wanted to cover? Or? No, I mean, I think the main thing is look after yourself, look after your loved ones, look after your neighbors because we're all in this together and you know, this crisis will pass and we'll come out of this. And I think we'll come out of this stronger. Yeah. Great. Well, I really appreciate your time. I know it's, um, it's the 31st of March as we record this. So um, just to give the context of what we're facing, um, but I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Shamobile. For me, there were several things that stood out. As you could tell, we had a really interesting conversation, but I just love that emphasis on the word love and what the foundations of the future might be. If you enjoyed this interview, then you might want to check out some of the other ones in the back catalog. Normally, my interviews go for about an hour, and we find out about the history of people and then talk about their lives and what they're doing today. So this one was a bit unusual. In fact, it's the first one where I've jumped straight into a topic. But I wanted to get this content out because we're thinking now about what all this means for the future and the world that we might build. You might also want to check out the webpage at theseeds.nz where there's lots of videos and articles on various topics, as well as the Facebook page, the Twitter account, and there's a LinkedIn page as well. Until next time. Mm -hmm.